The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week for episode 126. We got such a great show for you this week, so much stuff to talk about. But first, before we get into any of it, and this is going to sound like an unusual request, but I want you to just stop listening right now. I want you to hit pause after I tell you what to do here, because what I want you to do is hit pause on the podcast and immediately go to YouTube and check out the trailer for a new movie called Hearts Beat Loud. I have been so excited to see this movie trailer. This movie speaks to me. A couple weeks ago, I was talking about how I was getting frustrated at Hollywood because all the movies that were being put out there are just recycled reboots, reboot sequels, adaptations, blah, blah, blah. And we're not getting any cool original stories from Hollywood, but we finally have one, man. So check out the trailer for this movie. I, I've been so excited for it. I've been watching this trailer over and over for a movie called Hearts Beat Loud. It's starring Nick Offerman and Kiersey Clemens. It's a cool music movie. I know you guys are all musicians out there, so you know since we're all in that music mindset, I think you're going to dig the plot of this movie. It's about a father and a daughter who make music together, who get unexpected success when one of their songs gets featured on a Spotify playlist. And just as a fan of music and as a fan of Nick Offerman, who's probably the coolest actor out there, where are my Parks and Rec fans at? Whoop, whoop. Give me all the bacon and eggs you have, etc., you're going to love it. Um, I So I want you, if you have not seen this trailer yet, hit pause on the podcast, go check out this trailer, and then come back and listen to the podcast. So I'll give you a few seconds. All right, I assume you've all now come back after watching that trailer. How cool was that trailer? Again, that's all I'm excited for. It's coming out June 8th, and let's just all have a podcast field trip. Let's go all watch it together on June 8th when it comes out, because it just seems like a cool music movie, and it's got Nick Offerman, who's the coolest actor in Hollywood right now. I just I love everything he does. He's got such a cool presence, and it's a music movie. I'm excited. Our guest this week, Ilana Broad. I'm so excited to talk to her in the next segment. Ilana is a New York-based entertainment lawyer. She's going to talk to us specifically about how to build your team as an indie artist. That's a big issue for a lot of musicians out there. There is a pervasive myth for indie musicians. I would say it's perhaps the most pervasive myth out there. The idea that when you're making music as an independent artist, it's completely DIY. Do it yourself. If you're an independent artist, it means you're doing everything. You're managing your own career. You're managing your finances. You're handling the business. And nobody helps you because you're independent. And that could not be further from the truth. Just because you are independent doesn't make you alone. You still have a music operation. The difference is when you're independent, you get to be the leader of it. You get to be the boss. You get to make the profits. You get the last dollar. And man, that makes all the difference. But what it means is that when you get to a point in your career where things are getting busy enough that you have to hire other people, the people you pick are critical. You got to make sure you make the right decisions with who your support team is. And so we're going to talk to Alana Broad about who should be on that support team and what you should look for when picking your supporting cast to help you move your career forward. She's terrific. She's a fantastic young entertainment lawyer. We met actually 
because we were doing the Breaking Into Entertainment Law panel together at the ABA Entertainment Law Symposium I talked to you guys about last week. I dig her because she's basically the New York version of me. We even went to the same law school. We both work with indie artists. We're both on the younger side. And so I think you're going to appreciate her perspective. She's a lot cooler than I am just by virtue of the fact that she practices in New York and I practice here in South Florida. Not nearly as exciting as the Big Apple. And it continues the winning streak we've had on this podcast of having cool entertainment lawyers from New York. A few months back, We interviewed Cassandra Spangler, another fantastic and much cooler than me entertainment lawyer from New York. You should check out that interview if you uh, haven't checked it out yet. And definitely stick around for the next segment. We bring in Ilana Broad, and she gives you some great insight on how to build your team. But before we bring her in, let's just talk about music business as we do. First things first, we got some entertainment law news this week. Why did you judge me? You killed innocent people. The means to an end. You started a massacre. I caused a revolution. You betrayed the law. 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 Thank you, Mr. Asante. Congress has been so busy on the copyright front this week. A off-made criticism of our Congress is that they get nothing done and that they're really lethargic and they just sit around all day and don't actually accomplish anything and they just yell at each other and pick partisan fights. And 99% of the time, that could not be more true. But there are always exceptions to the rule, and one exception for this Congress is in the world of copyright law, where for whatever reason, this Congress has decided to fast-track some pretty important copyright legislation. On April 11th, so earlier this week, the House Judiciary Committee voted 32 to 0, big old shutout, 32 zip, to approve the Music Modernization Act. Uh, This is a comprehensive package of copyright legislation that's going to have significant effects for music creators like you. So if you remember a few weeks ago on the podcast, we talked about the Music Modernization Act and how it was going to have a big impact on indie artists. It was going to change the way a lot of music licensing works. It was going to have a lot of valuable aspects for indie artists. It was going to be a helpful bill for indie artists, but it had some negatives too. But basically what Congress has done is they've taken that Music Modernization Act that we've talked about, and then they crammed in a bunch of other copyright laws with it and have created this giant mega copyright law that is just flying through Congress right now. And when I say big, this is a big old bill. 153 pages. There is a whole lot of copyright going on in this bill, man. And As a podcast host and somebody who works with you independent artists, it is my responsibility to make sure you guys are informed in what is in this giant bill. And so I figured what I would do this week is spend this episode reading the entire bill to you word for word so that you can know what's in the bill because you got to be knowledgeable about what's going on in this bill. You have to know everything that's in this significant piece of copyright legislation. So here we go. I'm going to read it here for you. Section 101, short title. This title may be cited as the Musical Works Modernization Act. Section 102, blanket license for digital uses and mechanical licensing collective. Subsection A, amendment. Section 115 of Title 17 United States Code is amended. Subsubsection 1, in subsection A, subsubsection A by inserting... I'm just kidding, folks. (laughs) You did not actually think I was going to read that whole thing word for word. I do not hate you that much. I love you people. But the point is, I read the damn thing already, and I did it so that you wouldn't have to. I took that giant bill, and I'm going to summarize it all down. And what we're going to do right now is answer three questions about this bill that I think you guys need to know about 
as indie artists, because this is an important piece of copyright legislation. It's probably the most important copyright law in 20 years and the most significant federal music law, gosh, I'd say in over a century. So you guys are living right in the middle of copyright history. And as indie artists, you got to know what this law does. So I'm going to answer three questions here. First, I'm going to tell you what this law is going to do for you. Second, I'm going to tell you what the law isn't going to do for you. And third, we'll, we'll talk a little politics here and, and really answer whether we think this law is going to pass or not. So first question, what does the law do? Well, the Music Modernization Act does a few things that really matter for, cop, for content creators like you. Um, the first one is something that we've talked about a little bit on this podcast before, but it bears repeating, which is this law is going to change the way that songwriters like you get paid by streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music. And when I say change, I mostly mean change for the better. I mean change that's going to put more money in your pocket. So a uh, quick summary when you, uh, of how things work in the streaming world as for songwriters. When Spotify plays a song that you wrote, you get paid by two different types of royalties as a songwriter. First, you get a mechanical royalty, which is Spotify paying you for the right to convert your your song into this recording, which they then stream out. And then they also pay you a performance royalty, which in which Spotify basically is paying you for the privilege of publicly performing your work on Spotify. And as we've talked about on this podcast before, when you add up the mechanical royalty and the public performance royalty when your song that you wrote is played it still adds up to not very much money uh, most artists get paid a very tiny amount when they wrote a song uh, getting paid on the songwriter side on a platform like spotify and so what the music modernization act is going to try to do is find ways to up that royalty a bit and so what you're going to see happen is that a new licensing entity is going to be created for mechanical licensing we're going to change the procedures uh, that courts use by using this licensing entity to determine the mechanical royalty rates. So uh, mechanical royalty rates are determined by a government or a judicial board called the Copyright Royalty Board. And what this law does is it tells the board that they have to adopt a more free market, willing buyer, willing seller standard to determine the mechanical royalty rates. So uh, that are going to be that in which uh, Spotify is going to license music through this single licensing entity, and they have to pay these higher willing buyer, willing seller rates. Um, you're also going to see more performance royalties because they've made some changes to the way that rates are set on the performance royalty side, and that should lead to more performance royalties for you guys when your songs that you wrote are played on Spotify. That's the good news. The bad news about this law, as we've said before, is that as we talked about in the beginning with this licensing database, this entity, if you don't have your music in the licensing entity database, you don't have a right to sue if Spotify plays your music without your permission. So that's a little tricky. You're going to have more of a responsibility as a songwriter to make sure your music is in that database so that you can uh, get the mechanical royalties to which you're entitled because you're not going to have the same right to sue anymore if your music's not in that database. And I am optimistic that there are going to be a lot of services that will emerge that will make sure that your music is in that database. But if you can handle those bureaucratic steps, 
you're looking at more royalties as a songwriter on streaming platforms. So that's good. Another thing that the Music Modernization Act is going to do is it's going to make it easier for producers, engineers, and mixers to get paid for sound recording public performances on SoundExchange, so that's nice. It's also going to create a digital public performance right and royalty for sound recordings made before 1972. So the way that the law currently is is when a service like SiriusXM plays a song on SiriusXM or Pandora Radio, any basically any kind of digital internet radio, when they play a recording, they usually have to compensate the owners of that sound recording through SoundExchange. Um, but if your sound recording came out before 1972, they don't have to pay. And so now what this law is going to say is, even if the sound recording is made before 1972, now you do have to get paid. Um, None of that really matters to you guys as indie artists, because I'm guessing most of you guys are listening major sound recordings well after 1972, so we won't get too deep into those weeds, and we'll just move on. So that's question one. What does the Music Modernization Act do? It gets you more royalties as a songwriter when your music is played on streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music, but it also creates additional responsibilities to make sure your songs are in the new database that's going to be created to make sure you get paid. So that's nice. Um, What the law does not do, and this is kind of a bummer because Congress was saying that this is going to be the big year for very comprehensive copyright legislation. You know, every 20 years, Congress does a big copyright law and this was going to be it. And so many people said that one of the things that should be in the next big copyright bill is a public performance right for sound recordings on terrestrial radios. So currently... When songs are played on regular FM, AM, terrestrial radio, like the kind of radio most people have in their cars, the owners of the musical composition, the songwriters, they get paid. But the people who own the sound recording, which are either record labels or if an indie artist, a artist like you, they don't have, they don't get any royalties when their sound recordings are played on the radio because there's no public performance right for sound recordings on terrestrial radio. This puts the United States out of step with lots of other industrialized nations where they do have this performance right. And there's really no reason, no good policy reason, for why they don't have this public performance right, except for the fact that, you know, the radio stations are a powerful lobby. But most people thought that maybe this this next big copyright law would be the law that would have the public performance right, but no dice, a no public performance royalty for sound recordings made it into this bill, Better luck next time. So question three now, what I imagine people are asking, this sounds like a pretty big bill. It's going to make a lot of changes. So is it actually going to pass? Well, look, there are no certainties when it comes to working with Congress. It's a very weird legislative body. And most bills that get proposed don't ever get to the president's desk to be signed. But I would say in this case, it's a got a pretty good chance of getting signed. They, the, uh, the scuttlebutt around Congress is that, you know, since this bill flew through the Judiciary Committee, got unanimous Judiciary Committee approval, that means it has big bipartisan support. There's already discussion that the Senate is going to bring up their own Music Modernization Act bill in May, I believe. So it looks like this bill is getting fast-tracked. Um, it's got bipartisan support. It seems to have bicameral support because both houses of Congress seem to want to put something like this together. Uh, Republicans like it because, you know, it's got a lot of free market approaches to it. The Democrats like it because it's going to help out content creators. And the president seems to be somebody who's kind of a big fan of intellectual property. So there is no reason to believe that this isn't going to make it through Congress. Most experts are predicting that it will. So keep an eye out, folks. This 
this law could pass this session. It's looking fairly likely, but you never know with this Congress. But I would say better than 50-50 chance for sure. Before we bring in Alana Broad, I have a nice little listener question. You guys are bringing in some good listener questions on this podcast lately, and uh, I love reading these on the air because they always make for good content. So here's the question we got this week. Somebody asks, I have this problem. When I try to ask for contracts when I work with people, when I try to do music work with them, they always say no. And they always say something like, hey, let's not bring lawyers into this, or why do you need a contract? Are you going to sue me? What's a good thing to say in response? First of all, question asker, good on you. Good on you that you understand as an indie artist the importance of getting contracts in there. Even if it, even if you think it's going to make you unpopular or uncool or it's not very rock and roll to bring ink and paper into this dude, you know it's the right thing to do because you're a business and you're trying to protect your business and you're trying to protect your rights and contracts can be very good for this. So thank you for having your head on straight and I, I hope that l- more artists can learn from your example. But here's what you say to people who, when you say, hey, we should have a contract for this music transaction we're going to do together, maybe it's a gig, or maybe you're making a record together, or maybe it's a split sheet when you've written a song. Whenever anybody says, let's not bring lawyers into this, what you say back to them is, hey, you want to keep lawyers out of this? Let's put a contract together. Because when you have a good contract, you decrease the risk of there ever being litigation. And so you really have two choices when it comes to making a transaction. You either have a contract and you have lawyers involved for a few hours to write that contract and negotiate it, or you don't have a contract and you have a significant risk of getting sued at some point down the road. And then if you get sued, you have a lot of lawyers involved and that those lawyers are going to be involved for months and years because litigation is a pain in the ass. So if the goal is to keep lawyers out, have a contract because it prevents litigation from ever happening. Um, A little bit of lawyers now is a whole lot better than a lot of lawyers later. And when somebody says to you, because I've heard this one before as well, when they say, oh, why do you even want to have a contract? Are you planning to sue me someday? What you want to explain to them there is that contracts aren't about creating lawsuits. In fact, it's just the opposite. Contracts are about preventing lawsuits because what contracts do is all basically all, I mean, here's a good way of putting it. Basically, think of a music transaction that you're doing with somebody, whether it's writing a song or doing a gig, is like playing a board game. And you know what the contract is? It's the instructions. The instructions that everybody's going to follow. And when you try to play a board game and nobody knows the instructions, or better yet, you know, people have a difference of opinion as to what the instructions are, it can lead to arguments. You know, you're playing Monopoly with your friends and maybe you think that if you land on free parking, it's worth $500 and somebody else thinks if you don't land, if you land on free parking, it's worth nothing. Or some people say that, you know, you can only go around the board, you have to go around the board one time before you can buy properties. Everybody's got their own idea of what the rules are. And that happens in the music world too. Like you'd be surprised how different two people can think a, tra- a transaction's supposed to go and they have different impressions of the transaction until they actually get something in writing. And so that's all it is. It's just letting people know what the rules of the game are so that you don't have any arguments later. And by the way, in case you're wondering, when you're playing Monopoly, uh, free parking should be worth nothing because making it worth $500, as some people do, is a stupid rule, and it guarantees that your game of Monopoly will last forever. 
And also that whole thing about having to go around the board once before we buy properties, that's dumb. That's not even a rule. So there you go. But either way, the point is <laughs> um, have contracts because they prevent litigation. They don't encourage it. They don't they keep lawyers away. They don't bring lawyers into a deal. It ultimately makes things go a lot smoother and it will help your music business move forward. That's a great question. Anybody else got listener questions like that, like that for us to answer on the air? Email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. We love answering questions like that. All right. Alana brought up next. Keep listening to the Break the Business podcast. Ryan here from the podcast. Shameless plug time. My new book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry is now available in paperback and an ebook. The book talks about how you can be your own boss in your music career and take control of your content creation, promotion, distribution, and fundraising. Get your copy on Amazon by searching Break the Business. It's a nice read for musicians and the people who love them. That's Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry. Thanks very much for your support. Welcome back to the Break the Business Podcast. She is a New York-based entertainment and IP attorney who formerly worked in business and legal affairs for BMG Rights Management and now advises independent artists in private practice. You can find out more about her work by visiting IlanaBroadESQ.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Ilana Broad is on the Break the Business Podcast. Ilana, thank you so much for being on. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so stoked. Alana, I had the pleasure of meeting you for the first time at the ABA Entertainment Law Symposium. We were on a panel together. And what I basically came to for my conclusion about you is we're basically the same kind of person. We do the same kind of stuff in law, except you're doing it in New York. So you're doing it much cooler, but with a higher cost of living. Is that about right? <laughs> Um, you know, I've done my best to keep my cost of living as limited as I possibly can, but you are right. It is an expensive city. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're, yeah, but, uh, are hanging in there. And I was saying during the first segment that you, you are just the latest in a long winning streak I've had of, uh, having on New York based entertainment lawyers that are all just so much cooler than me. A few months ago, we had on a lawyer named Cassandra Spangler, who is also kind of super cool. Like she's a drummer, you're a guitarist and you're a drummer. I bet I could form a pretty good band of just New York entertainment lawyers I've had on the show. Y'all would crush it. I mean, honestly, we get into this business because we love what our clients are making. Like, of course, we're going to have tried our hand at some of those instruments at some point. If you do have an entertainment attorney, I advise you to ask them if they play in something because sometimes they do. And it's entertaining to see that. <laughs> That's right. And if you're ever a musician and you're in your career and you're ever doubting your abilities, you're thinking, oh, maybe I don't have the chops. Just have your entertainment lawyer play something for you. And you'd be like, oh, I do have talent. <laughs> it's so true though it's so true <laughs> all right a lot of you work with a lot of independent musicians in your legal practice and one of the things that you advise them on a lot is building their team and that's great because it's an important theme of our podcast we say all the time on this show just because you're independent doesn't mean you're alone and there's really no such thing as the diy artist because a lot of artists have a support team so Let's say you have an indie artist client who's getting busy enough in their career that they start to need a supporting cast. Who are some of these supporting team members? Uh, what, are, what are their titles? So I think the first team member, the first addition that a performing artist wants to look for is a manager. Um, 
after that, generally, they'll try to bring on either a business manager or an attorney, a live agent, a tour manager, maybe some merch designers that will help them with artwork, maybe a specific social media coordinator, independent PR. There are tons of specialists that work in music or general entertainment industries that are more than happy to help you as you grow your career and reach for your goals. What we're going to talk about today is more how managers and attorneys work well together, what to look for when you're interviewing those people. What I see often is that when artists get to the point where they're, they need to bring on a specialist to help them grow their career, they're just so pumped to work with the first person that walks in the door that they're like, let's go, you're on my team, Like we're family, we're friends. <laughs> Let's move forward. And you should be critical of the people that approach you to work with you. I, you know, everyone brings something to the table. Everybody has pros and cons to their work style, their leadership style, um, their ideas for you, their value sets. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the introspective work, the intellectual labor that artists need to do in advance of interviewing these professionals and how to ask those questions, what problems arise when those professionals work together, how to screen for those things in advance of signing agreements with them. Okay, that's awesome. I like that. And and I, I do think that makes a lot of sense is, you know, one of the first people that the first kind of sub substantive team members you're bringing on is that manager. And so when an artist gets to a point where, they can't pull all the levers on their own and they want to bring in somebody like this to help them manage their career. What are some of the initial kind of questions they might want to ask a prospective manager? Before we get into that, I just want to be clear, waking up one day and deciding you're ready for a manager does not actually mean that you're ready for a manager. <laughs> if you wake up and you decide you want a manager, your best bet is to be your own manager. Mm. You know, delineate what are the skills, what are what are what's the work that a manager will do and set aside time in your week, time in your day where you're going to contribute that work to your own artist project. When managers look for artists to sign, one of the things that they look for is an artist that is doing their own management effectively. It's a lot easier to sit down and strategize with someone that's done that on their own before, that understands what they can bring to the table and what are their limitations. Um, so, you know, just deciding you want a manager, that's not the way you get a manager. Usually it's, <laughs> it's mutually beneficial. Everyone's gonna work together to make your career bigger, more monetizable, more profitable in the long run, or at the very least longer lasting that you can rely on the career career. Once you get past that stage, once you have someone that's, you know, coming to you, that's talking to you, I guess, you know, the first thing I'd say is be aware of what you need from a manager. Since you've done this on your own for a little bit, what are you good at? What have has not worked for you? You know, have you set up your own tour and manage your own tour and live engagements, but you don't really understand your copyrights and your legal obligations. Are you great at setting co-rights and networking opportunities up, but you need a more removed or objective perspective of the writing and production that you get done? Um, are you all right managing design and branding, but terrible at managing money? Know what you bring to the table, what you really need help with, and look for someone with a complementary set of skills and successes. You're going to work together to build your career up. It's not them 
doing everything and 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 be comfortable asking those questions up front it really is an interview you're going to sit down for coffee you're going to have a phone call you're going to have an initial meeting you want to have an idea of what they've done in the past that relates to what you're going to do you're going to want to have an idea of where they've been successful what are their weaknesses and none of this like corporate interview stuff where they're <laughs> like what's your weakness and the answer is my weakness is i care too much like they should have actual substantive criticisms for work that they've done in the past so you can be critical of the extent to which it's going to be a good fit for you going forward. It's a very, very close working relationship and you should really know what you're getting into. But beyond the specific services that they're going to provide, their skills, you're also going to want to test the extent to which you get along with them. A manager doesn't have to be your best friend. In fact, most of the managers that I spoke with before coming on this podcast to like triple check that I am saying the right thing, <laughs> were very clear that they don't want to be your friend. They want to have a mutually respectful relationship, but that you guys are working together. But even in spite of that, you should be working with a manager that's going to care a lot about your mental health, your happiness, your well-being, the extent to which your goals are attainable and how quickly you're achieving them. You're talking with them at least once a week, preferably every day, frankly, and especially as things build up more and more and more. I mean, this manager is coming to you with third parties that are going to be affecting your rights, ways that you can make money. They need to be clear with you about how that's going to affect every other area of your life, what obligations you take on. So make sure you have a close working relationship with them. Sit down, be comfortable if they ask you, how are you? If you're uncomfortable, you get bad vibes, trust your gut. The way you would trust your gut coming out of a session, if you don't like the song, you don't feel it's representative of you, you wanna give it to another artist and just be a writer on that track, that gut instinct relates to your relationships with people as well, trust that. Be sure that you're clear coming in what you need, but also allow yourself room to test on the fly if you vibe, if you get along with that person. Um, once you're in there and you're asking actively communicated questions about the extent to which they fit into your vision, make sure that those questions also cover if your visions of success are similar. If you're working with an, a manager whose idea of success is $100,000 per live gig, but your idea of success is just being happy and making ends meet for the rest of your life, you're probably not going to work super well together. You're going to have a totally different goal set. But also make sure that your values align. I think the greatest disparity in values I see in this industry is that some people want to build a family and build up together, and some people are just in it for themselves. And I have no judgment either way. It's, it's whatever you want out of this career, but your manager is representing you to the outside world. They need to be on that same value front. You need to be clear about what are your values, your expectations, your needs, and make sure managers fit into all of those things and be upfront. Get to the heart of the compatibility issues. Managers wanna know that stuff too. And they wanna know that the person that they're working with knows that about themselves in advance of taking on that obligation. Well, that makes so much sense, especially in this current music industry climate where the definition of success can change so much from artist to artist. 20 years ago, Success was the same thing for every artist, you know, sell a ton of mm -hmm. records, tour the world, et cetera, et cetera. But now there's so many different ways for an indie artist to make a living. You know, you could do music licensing, you could be a touring musician, you know, you could be making jingles or top lines or whatever it is. And so you want to make sure that you and that manager have the same end goal in mind and make sure you have a manager that is built to 
meet your definition of success. That's that's cool. I never thought of it that way. A hundred percent. But also every set of goals is going to come with different avenues of monetization. If you're looking to write the jingle for a Pepsi commercial, you're probably not going to spend money developing your live show. Right. So a manager that really only knows that, I mean, maybe he's better suited trying to get you to open for another existing act or get you on satellite radio or release a live album. That's well and good, but it's not the same as aligning with your values, with your ideas of success. But keep in mind, this is not a one-step process. Artists need to have done the thinking in advance to make sure that they know what they want coming into this. Most managers that I know that are interviewing clients, the first thing that they'll do is say, who do you want to be in five years? Where do you want to be in five years? And an artist that doesn't know that has more work to do on their own before they team up with a manager. Wow. And so you talked a little bit before about the relationship and the interplay between attorneys and managers. Um, can you <laughs> can you talk a little bit about how that can kind of work for an artist? I mean, as an attorney, I'm sure you have to work with your clients' managers a lot. Uh, do you yeah. is is do the two do those two folks tend to have the same goals? Are they at cross purposes a lot? As an artist, how do you help sort of manage that relationship between these two people who in theory are both supposed to be looking out for your best interests? A hundred percent. I mean, I think being clear on your values and your goals up front as you're interviewing both of these parties independently will be a really good way to see if they're going to work well together. If you have an attorney that values the one-off deal for more money now, as opposed to maintaining a relationship going forward that will theoretically bring you more opportunities, they're not going to get along well with a manager that feels that his job is to manage your relationships to some degree. Um, if everyone's on the same page values wise and goals wise, uh, you have a better chance of those people working well together. I don't know that there's any one way to be sure of that, but I can absolutely tell you nightmare stories that I've had working with managers where it has not been a positive working relationship. <laughs> um, and I think that can be illuminating as to things that you should look out for in advance. Um, so for example, I have lived and worked in a situation where the manager does not keep the attorney apprised as to how things move forward. The manager negotiates material terms without discussing it with the attorney, and then you know just sort of throws something at the attorney, tells them to draft it, doesn't let them know that there's no negotiation room left, and the attorney's sort of sitting there blind. Worst case scenario, the attorney continues trying to negotiate a deal that's already been negotiated to death, or the manager shows up with terms that don't make any sense. I've had managers call me up and say, you know, we're going to do a music master licensing deal and the artist is going to keep 10% of net profits. And I'm like, why would you do that? Why would you ever? Have you told your client this is a good deal? Does your client believe you? What are you doing? Like, Managers and attorneys need to know what they do and don't bring to the table and work well to complement each other together. So making sure that there's open lines of communication, that may solve that issue. Making sure you're working with managers that know what attorneys can help them with, that's good. Some professionals in this industry, including artists, artists are not safe from this, bring a lot of ego to the table. And the trouble with that is that they don't know what they don't know, or they're not <laughs> willing to admit what they don't know. And we should all sort of complement our knowledge sets and our skill sets together. 
Um, another really terrible situation in which I was involved is where uh, the manager only thinks the attorney should be notified of big deals and doesn't discuss the sort of smaller one-off things that happen. The worst case scenario of that is that you've already exclusively assigned rights to a third party and you're doing it all over again. So just signing oh. the second agreement is breaching the first. Oh, I know. Oh. It's a nightmare. And it's happened a number of times. And look, we understand sometimes you can't afford to bring an attorney on to fully negotiate the entirety of a $50 deal. We get it. We know that money is fungible and the money you're spending on us is not going to your next record. But if you're going to negotiate a deal without us, send us the fully executed version. And your manager should know this because when I get the request for the second deal, I need to know about the existence of the first one. So withholding information, making decisions without the other party, these are all things that managers and attorneys do to each other that create nightmare situations for the artist. And then the last thing that I'd say that's a total nightmare is where you've set up a situation with your manager where they're making decisions without you. So if they're countering negotiations or accepting negotiations without having run that stuff by you, get rid of the manager. If an attorney does that, they're breaking ethics rules and get rid of the attorney as well. But <laughs> Yeah. No party on your team should be making decisions for you without at least getting your okay, unless you've been up and running that way for a long time. You know that that's how you work together. That's fine. Obviously, you know, dynamic consent changes as relationships develop over time. But in the first couple of years of working with these new team members, everyone should be communicating with everyone all of the time. And breakdowns in that communication create terrible, terrible results. Matt, so when you have a... Yeah, you because know, you, know, it, it, you know, obviously every case of a you know manager working with a, an attorney and working with an artist is going to be a little different. But it sounds like if you have a manager who is reluctant to keep the lawyer apprised of what's going on, is reluctant to communicate things with the attorney, or at least, or at the long least, won't even send executed agreements to the attorney, an artist should see that as a red flag. I I would say that the artist should see that as more than a red flag. Um, and, you know, if I'm going to be frank with you, I see that happen more with female artists than I do with male artists. In my experience, male artists have no trouble being updated by their managers and their attorneys as they go through the processes. Younger artists, female artists, for whatever reason, and I don't really care to speculate on social norms and the way those are affecting the music industry right now, that's a whole separate podcast. Um, but for whatever reason, certain classes of clients tend to be updated by their team members less or with less information. Make it clear to your team members when they sign up that this is team you. We are all working to advance your career and we all come up together when we advance your career, but it is your career. It is your dream. It is your set of goals. It is your vision. It is your needs. It is your health and well-being, and it is yours. It is 100% yours. And if you have any one member of your team that doesn't see it that way, or even reflects through their behavior that part of them doesn't see it that way, that person's got to go. That's not just a red flag. That's a major issue. Well, speaking of team members having to go, and let's keep this on managers, because I am interested in your answer to this, um, the artist manager relationship 
I mean, can be such a difficult one that I feel like in so many cases, it's not a question of if the artist is going to be sick with working with this manager. It's just a question of when. And unfortunately, the music industry has just one too many horror stories of artist-manager relationships going wrong. So Mm -hmm. as an attorney, when a artist tells you, I got this manager, I want to work with them, you know, let's structure a deal where I can work with this manager... Are there anything is are there any clauses or is there any kind of terms that you might put in a management contract to sort of mitigate the risk of things getting really toxic? <laughs> this is a great question, but you have to understand my ability to throw mitigating clauses in a contract is entirely dependent on the manager's willingness to accept those <laughs> mitigating clauses. So ideally, yes, we can make management agreements either non-exclusive or terminable at will with absolutely no sunset clause. To be clear, people that are listening, a sunset clause is a clause by which managers get a continued and decreasing commission after the deal is done, because theoretically they've contributed to your ongoing career beyond just the term of the exclusive management deal. But the fact of the matter is most managers are not going to accept that in a signed deal. There are things that you can do before you sign an exclusive exclusive longer term commitment, uh, a legal commitment, a legal obligation, a court enforceable obligation, what I would advise, what I do advise all of my clients to do before working with a manager under an exclusive commissions-based deal is to work with them on a short-term release or on a limited run basis. I'd say, you know, up to six months if you can get that. Um, At the very least, a single release. Work with them on that basis at first. If the manager takes issue with that, they want to make sure they're getting some earnings in exchange for what they're providing to your team. You can discuss with them a week by week commission. I know a lot of managers will do like some dollars per week to help you with a certain release. And you can discuss sort of the ways in which their services will be limited for that on that basis, as opposed to on a commissions basis. But you know, if you're entering into a serious long-term relationship, you should have an intern for a little bit before you hire them. You should see how (laughs) well you work together and don't just show up to that, that trial period. Like, um, okay, you're my trial manager. Go show up to that trial period with an idea of your goals within that trial period, of the ways in which that trial period should contribute to your long-term goals as well. And ideally work with that almost manager, with that friendager, as my clients refer to them, um, to, to strategize how you're going to achieve that. I really like the single release model. I've seen a lot of success in that way in the past. Um, mostly I've seen a lot of success sort of being clear about the ways in which you will not work well with a prospective and potential manager if you can work with them on a singles release. Um, If you're doing all of the work that your manager should be doing just because it's the short term and they're not getting a commission, that behavior probably won't change once they do and earn a commission. Managers generally invest in potential clients in advance of getting money. And if you're talking with someone that's really not willing to do that, Go back to square one, grow your career a bit until you find someone that is. There are managers out there that are going to work with you in the short term because they understand that it's difficult to make a long-term commissions-based commitment in an exclusive deal. And I think one more thing worth adding to this point that I cannot stress enough, and I acknowledge that I benefit from this advice, so feel free to take this with a grain of salt, but I think anyone worth their salt in this industry will give you this advice. Do not sign an exclusive agreement with a manager until you have an attorney. And Amen! 
Oh, I know. <laughs> emails are agreements in some states. So if you're talking to some sketchball who's like, I'm down to not sign an exclusive agreement, but just send me an email agreeing to these terms. You just signed an exclusive agreement and you didn't even know. And if you're talking to a manager who says, you don't trust me, that's why you're bringing in an attorney, run for the hills. Run as fast as you can in the other direction. Never work with someone that gives you a hard time for wanting to have an attorney review your agreements. I mean, I know it's easier said than done, but especially in the context of a manager, 15 to 20% of gross receipts is way too much for you to give up without knowing your rights. Oh my God. We just talked about this in the first segment. We had a, I swear a lot of, we just had a, a listener question in the first segment where the listener asked, um, I keep trying to do deals with people and I insist on a written contract and they always say to me, well, why do you want a written contract? Are you going to sue me? Like, why do we have to bring lawyers into this? So oh like, goodness. yeah, you just like, in, in fact, <laughs> let, let me set up that listener question for you because I already yeah. answered it, but I think I'd like to get your answer. Like, yeah. what, what do you say to the artist who's like, every time I I try to insist on a written contract they say why do we need to bring lawyers into this like are you going to sue me why do you need a contract what's a good comeback for them to say so they can get the contract they need usually what i tell my clients to say is to practice standing up for their own rights in a really respectful way my favorite go-to script sounds a lot like this i have way too much respect for myself and what I've invested in my artist project to risk litigation. And the risk of litigation happens when you don't have a contract. Mm. I really don't appreciate you insinuating that I'm trying to pull one over you by making sure that my rights are covered in this situation. When you're ready to act like a professional in this industry and take me seriously, we can talk about releasing this song under a contract. Boom. Boom. Man, you answered that so much better than I did. I mean, look, it's tricky sometimes. I see this a lot with song splits in particular. An artist goes in, and we'll come back to the main topic in a little no, bit. No, no, this is good. An artist, an artist will go into a co-writing session. They'll be on the way out and be like, oh, hey, really quick before we go, can we just sign this song split? And all of my clients have a form song split. I send them into every co-writing session just to get the percentages figured out with a tentative title of the composition, keep notes of all that stuff. And the number one you know, feedback, piece of feedback I get from clients when I hand them this form is it's uncomfortable. Some people don't want to sign deals. How do I ask for this? If you want to change contract culture, if you want to change agreement culture, information culture in music industry, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. Insist on that contract, insist on that deal, because I'll tell you, my job is infinitely more difficult and more expensive for you if you don't come to me with already signed song splits that you've previously discussed with your writers. And make sure that those co-writers notify their managers, notify their attorneys, because it's not uncommon that I call up an attorney and I say, oh no, actually, we already agreed to this point when they went into the session because she showed up with a fully you know, figured out song and he just added a line to a verse. So no, he cannot have 50% of the composition, <laughs> you know? Um, get in the contract culture. Your rights are important. Your needs are important. Your obligations are important. You are important and you are way too important to just give that up to somebody else because they are uncomfortable having that serious of a conversation. Oh my God, that was outstanding. That's exactly... I mean- <laughs> Like I, I, 
I, I think what I'm going to start doing with clients now is I'm just going to record that snippet of what you just said. And then when they say that, I'm just going to play it back for them and, you know, go get, get a sandwich or something while they do what they're doing. But I mean, maybe I should be like an artist motivational speaker now. Like, I feel like I have a career in totally. this. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, and there's probably so much more money in that than there is in law. <laughs> like, oh my oh. goodness the listeners listening in right now this is sparky treating you to his cacophony of barking in the background <laughs> i was wondering what that was yeah i adore him so much and he's got a lot to say on this subject no that's right we have dogs barking on this show all the time molly my <laughs> executive producer golden retriever uh, always contributes for every interview so no problem um oh my god alana i can tell that you have so much insight that you can share on this topic. And it is now abundantly clear to me that one interview is not going to do your knowledge justice. Um, if you don't mind, I love to set something up where like we can bring you back every few weeks in some kind of like recurring segment to talk about building a team and things like that. I think that would be awesome. I think that sounds absolutely great so long as you allow me to tell NYU Law Review the show stories while we're on air. That's very important to me. Of course. Of course. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, Ryan and I both performed in the same parody musical in law school without knowing each other one year apart. Mm. It was the highlight of both of our law school experiences, and we are both really cool people. Oh, God. Did 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 we even mention that, that we both went to NYU Law? We did. Not. Oh my God, that's terrible of us. Yeah, we both went to the same law school. We actually found out that when we met each other, folks, at the ABA conference, that even though we went to NYU Law at different times, we have all the same friends because our friends overlapped our tenures at NYU Law. So we're 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 we've been best friends for like the last five or six years, and we just didn't even know it. it is such a small world I love it so much but you know if you're going to have me back on this segment before I go before we close out this topic it's important to me to mention there exists in this world the bible of the music industry and as you're building your team I encourage you to read through the first section of this book I am not paid to drop this name I actually rely on it every single day it's Donald Passman's All You Need to Know About the Music Business pages 11 to like 65 basically will give you an idea of what you need to bring to the table before you start looking for team members and what team members are essential to a substantially grown artist career. So as you're building up from indie to developed team, uh, I definitely advise you to have a copy of this book on your desk. It's like $30 on Amazon and it is an invaluable investment in the growth of your career. Absolutely. A fantastic book. It was, I think it was the first book that I read that got me into the music industry and so mm-hmm. what I think Alana is saying is that when you're done reading Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence, and Achieving True Success in the Music <laughs> Industry, get yourself a copy of All You Need to Know About the Music Business by Donald Passman. <laughs> a, a fantastic <laughs> work. If I had to if I had to set a list for books that were absolutely necessary for an indie musician as they were growing their career, I would say Break the Business and All You Need to Know are definitely top. And after those two, I would advise clients to invest in Music, Money, and Success by the Brabeck oh, Twins. Oh, yeah. Those three indispensable aspects of your music library, you should be knowledgeable. I mean, you know, ideally you bring an attorney to the table that's knowledgeable on your behalf and will explain these things in layman's terms. But if you show up and you know half of what they're talking about already, you're saving yourself time and money having these conversations. So these books will be very, very helpful for you. They will explain a lot more in depth. 
some of the topics that we touch on today. I'm hopeful I can come back and explain those in depth on this podcast too sometime in the future, <laughs> should Ryan decide to have me. Oh, for sure, for sure. All right, Alana, I'm excited to ask you this question. Before we let you go, which will only be temporary because we're going to have to have you on again because you have so much great stuff to share with us. Do you have any last tips to share with the indie artist listeners out there to help them move their careers forward? Absolutely. The number one tip I give all of my clients and friends in the business and people for whom I'm fans, frankly, is watch out for your mental health. Take care of yourself. There is no artist project if there is no you. And frankly, existing, performing in a career that is inherently performative, where so much of your identity is external to you, is based on how people respond, you are not in control of those things. And it's really taxing and really hard. When you're looking for professionals to join your team, make sure that you're looking for professionals that care about your mental health and well-being. And if they don't, or if they do, even make sure you're setting aside time to take care of yourself. And none of this, oh, I think about taking care of myself. Put in your calendar a nothing day, a nothing evening. Turn on that terrible reality TV show that makes your brain turn off. Pick out a puzzle that you like. Go see a therapist. Talk to your friends. Just set aside time for your mental health and well-being. We need your music. Our culture develops with your music. We love it. We're fans, and we don't get that if you're not taking care of yourself. So for us and for yourself, watch out for your mental health. Nobody else is advocating for your mental health but you, and you have to be that advocate. She knows her stuff, people. Check her out <laughs> at ilanabrodesq.com. That's I-L-A-N-A-B-R-O-A-D. ESQ.com. Ilana, thank you so much for being on this week. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back on the Break the Business podcast. Friend of the show, John Ratzenberger here with Ryan Carella, author of Break the Business, declaring your independence and achieving true success in the music industry. Available on Amazon.com. Ryan, tell the folks a little about the book. Well, the book's about empowering Well, artists. that's fascinating, Ryan, but it's only a 15-second commercial. Thanks. Welcome back, everybody. Our thanks to Ilana Broad for joining us in the previous segment. Be sure to check her out at ilanabrodesq.com. That's I-L-A-N-A-B-R-O-A-D-E-S-Q.com. So here's something you guys might find interesting. I was certainly intrigued by this. According to a study conducted by researchers at New York University, there is a statistical correlation between people who like the song No Diggity by Blackstreet and people who are psychopaths. I'm serious. Like, you can check the study. They, they like, had a bunch of people do a personality profile, and apparently the people who would be technically considered psychopaths also happen to like the song No Diggity by Blackstreet. Two things that come to mind when I see this study. First of all, I fully support that we are funding studies like this. What a, it's a great use of our scientists' time. I love this. We need more studies like this. Frankly, I want my tax dollars funding these studies. I mean, forget about fixing world hunger and poverty. Like, no, let's direct some money to finding out about why listening to Blackstreet makes you a psychopath. That, I mean, this is just delightful. Second of all, I can't help but feel like I'm being personally attacked by this study because I love the song No Diggity. It is an absolute jam. If you have not heard it in a while, go back and listen to it. It holds up. It is a straight-up jam. 
But perhaps this is saying something about me that I don't like so much. Apparently, maybe I'm a psychopath because I like No Diggity by Blackstreet. But I feel like we all are because everybody loves this song. So I'm not sure what's going on with that study. But how on earth could this be a song for psychopaths? Are there actually psychopaths that are around in this world that listen to No Diggity by Blackstreet and think, yes, this totally speaks to me? Are, Are there psychopaths out there? Who are listening to, I like the way you work it, no diggity, I like to bag it up, and think to themselves, yeah, bag it up, like bagging up bodies after I chop them up into tiny little pieces because I'm a psychopath. That's totally what that song is about. I I just, I I don't see the connection about this perfectly innocuous hip-hop R&B song and people who, you know, don't feel any remorse when they senselessly kill people. But either way, you know, Science is science, and it was funded by the same university that Ilana and I went to law school for, so you know, it must be a pretty legit study. So there you go. If you uh, like the song No Diggity by Blackstreet, uh, check yourself. So the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions were on Saturday night as well. Congrats to Bon Jovi, The Cars, Nina Simone, Dire Straits, The Moody Blues, and Sister Rosetta Thorpe for getting in this year. All very, very deserving, and I I can say that a buddy of mine, I have a very dear friend of mine who is perhaps the biggest Bon Jovi fan around. I mean, even John Bon himself probably does not like the band as much as my friend does, and he is just so stoked that the band got inducted into the hall. Oh, and he's excited that Richie Sambora reunited with the band for the induction, and they all played together. Does this mean they're going to get back together and that the band's going to reunite fully and do a tour? Who knows? But for that one night, all was right in the Bon Jovi universe because Richie and John were sharing a stage together and... Congrats to all the Bon Jovi fans out there. And let me say something to you guys. You Bon Jovi fans out there, I'm going to say something that I know you're going to agree with. The fact that it took your beloved band this long to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is ridiculous, is absurd. Your band, Bon Jovi, has been eligible for 10 years to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And by any measure, they are one of the most acclaimed, most popular, most beloved rock bands on the face of the earth. Bon Jovi is rock and roll. The fact that it took them 10 years to get in is just stupid. I mean, Bon Jovi has sold over 130 million records worldwide. 130 million records. They're in the UK Music Hall of Fame. John and Richie are in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. What are we doing that it takes them this long to get to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? So, uh, Bon Jovi fans, your patience is commendable. You had every right to be indignant that it took these guys this long to get in, but you're in, and let's celebrate. And really what happened with Bon Jovi here is just a symptom of a greater disease because there are so many phenomenal musicians who are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Despite being eligible, they have, they've had their 25 years since their first commercial release, and by any measure, they are among the greats in music and have still not found their way into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And before this episode, I just decided, oh, let me look up who is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that, that should be. And I'm going to list some incredible music names here for you that are not in the hall despite being eligible. The Pixies, Joy Division, Judas Priest, Whitney Houston, Whitney Houston, Whitney Houston, the most awarded female artist of all time. She actually has the Guinness World Record for most awards by a female artist. She's got two Emmys, six Grammys, 30 Billboard Music Awards, 22 American Music Awards, and uh, she's the only artist 
to ever have seven consecutive number ones on the Billboard Hot 100. How is she not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I know what y'all are going to say right now. Oh, but she's not a rock and roll artist. So why would she be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Just first of all, stop. Aretha Franklin's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Madonna's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So Whitney Houston should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame too. Nice try. What other arguments you got? And while we're talking about non-rock artists that should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, LL Cool J, why aren't you in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? If NWA is in, you should be as well. I think Tupac's not in either. What's going on with these people? And oh my God, this one. If you, for even the people who are like, well, you know, those people aren't traditional rock artists. So, you know, they shouldn't be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How about this one? Radiohead. Not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Radiohead. Radiohead. One of the most pivotal rock and bands ever that have inspired so many rock artists that have changed the genre. Not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And look, I'm not, a, I'm not standing for Radiohead here, all right? I am not a fan of Radiohead's music, all right? I like maybe four Radiohead songs. And it's the four songs that everybody likes. It's the four songs that when you go to a Radiohead concert, Tom York's not going to play him because he's too cool to play his hits. Like, those are the Radiohead songs I like. So this isn't just me being an irrational Radiohead fan. This is me being an outside observer of pop culture and of music saying and conceding that despite me not being a fan of their music, I understand their contributions to the genre. And so the fact that Radiohead is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is ridiculous. They are one of the architects of modern rock music right now. They are critically acclaimed, commercially acclaimed, you know, award-winning. You know, they've contributed to the culture. They've influenced music so much. I mean, get out of here, Radiohead's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And here's the problem. If you want to know why the Pixies, Joy Division, Judas Priest, Whitney Houston, LL Cool J, and Radiohead are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, despite the fact that they absolutely should be, and you want to point the finger at something, if you want to point the finger as to why it took Bon Jovi 10 years to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, despite being one of the most acclaimed rock and roll bands ever, the problem is the voting process. The whole issue is that the people who vote for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame are not representative of of the music community as a whole. It's a bunch of old people who voted in a bunch of traditional rock bands, and then those traditional rock bands got votes because they got into the Hall of Fame, and so we have more old people voting, and so you're not you're you're getting sort of a imbalanced, you're not getting young music people in there. You're not getting modern rock fans. You're not getting those kind of people who appreciate the kind of music that the Pixies, Joy Division, Whitney Houston, and Radiohead contribute and that's the problem with the process you don't have enough hip-hop people voting and that creates problems and so if you want to fix this problem if you want these deserving musical acts to get into the rock and roll hall of fame and to correct the kind of injustices that bon jovi had had to face for 10 years before they got in you got to give more young voters a vote you got to give more modern rock people a vote and you know they're starting to do this a little bit i think they made a big deal out of the fact that they uh, gave quest love a vote I mean, that's cool. Questlove's cool. Questlove's also 47. All right. Like, yes, it's better than, you know, you probably got a bunch of dinosaurs voting on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that are much older than 47, but 47 is still a little too old. Like, get some people in their 30s or, God forbid, their 20s, you know, who know about that era of rock music, who can put some more modern rock perspective in there so that bands like the Pixies and Radiohead and Whitney Houston can find their way into their rightful place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So much of this has to be fixed because this is just getting absurd. You cannot call yourself, you know, the the pantheon and, and you know the keeper 
of great music and, and the decider of who is cons- given this legendary status if you're keeping out all of these really pivotal top shelf acts. So fix it, fix it, fix it, because Bon Jovi got in. There are a whole bunch of Bon Jovis just like him who deserve to. All right. Our thanks to Alana Broad for joining us this week. Keep listening to the Break the Business podcast. See you next time.